Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty, and I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne. I'm presenting Talking Design, and I'm here with a very interesting man called Yoast. You've probably heard of Yoast. He did, uh, he's responsible for the greenhouse uh, cafes that are popping up all around Australia. And I met Yoast 10 years ago, and I still remember seeing his work uh, a number of steel installations or recycled rusted steel uh, utensils that he was using to display uh, flowers. And um, I think at that stage he said he had, you know, hundreds of clients and he would organise the um, the flowers in each one. And I couldn't work out the logistics, how one man would get up and do all that. So welcome, Yoz, to Talking Design. It's Thank a you. privilege to have you here. I can't believe it's that long ago. It doesn't it's seem... It's 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, you a little bit of background for people that don't know, Yoast. You came from Holland as a child. You were nine years old. Yep. Uh, but before then, just tell me a little bit about your experience in Holland. Uh, we lived in a very intensively farmed area so that we were surrounded by um, tulip farms and lots of um, intensively harvested tomatoes and veggies and flowers and you know every single square centimeter was used and we um, I went to a school and the school advised uh, my mum quite early on that I needed to go down a creative path so she um, approached a local painter and so every Wednesday I spent a few hours with him painting and doing that and then when I got to Australia I sort of gave up on the whole creative side it wasn't really pushed and I was much more excited by my family's push to start their own business and create their own farm and and um it was a tulip farm yeah tulips lilies I mean at that time my dad grew everything you know my brothers and um it was so exciting because we built our own cool rooms we built our own you know we used whatever we could to to build stuff and I, it really excited me as well as growing and so it, was, so it was the combination of those two things I remember the first shed that my brothers built was a little shack that they connected onto or well, was sitting next to a pole a, a power line pole and okay we need to expand so they ended up building the whole shed eventually around this pole and the guy came to inspect the poles one day about three years later and he said um, I don't think you're supposed to be using a pole to hold the building up. And he just looked at it and laughed and he said, all right, look, I'll just leave it. And the shed still stands today. That's 25 years ago that we built that. Wow. And I've got lots of fond memories of, you know, relatives coming over from New Zealand or from Holland and all over helping build. And, you know, I had relatives that were good carpenters or, you know, were handy and would help my family build igloos or... So very much a hands-on approach to yeah, everything. Yeah. I think what's interesting about your story and where you fit in the time period is that 10 years ago, or even 10 to 15 years ago, sustainability was only on the fringe. If you did see anything that was sustainable, it was pretty hideous to look at. Um, yeah. You know, it, was, it wasn't quite there. So you've actually made sustainability, uh, you know, very popular. You know, I mean, you and a, and a growing movement of people have made it acceptable, but also brought to it a high level of design. Yeah, it and was really not really my intention to. Um, I, I, it sort of happened by accident, really. I just, I've always, even as a little kid, found stuff that people were throwing away and thought, why are they. I, I've always found it odd that people throw stuff away. And um, especially when you live in a country, you know, with at the time probably 15 million people and half the size of Tasmania it was you know people came to when I came to Australia my friends would say how you know how 
could you live with so many people in such a small place? Because the teacher made a big deal out of explaining where I came from and and it never seemed overcrowded and everybody sort of dealt with things. And then you come to Australia where you've got so much land. and um, So much wastage. Well, yeah. And, and um, I just got – I've always been really excited by it and I also love using it and it's always got a story. So when you're using – like at the moment I'm using this stuff, which is a new – it's a replacement for copper pipe. And the way that it's made in Dandenong, this stuff gets sent all over the world. They get have a certain offcut, and now I've designed this chair out of it. And it's like, if you actually wanted to go and buy this material, to the, you know, the chair looks so much better because of the material. Yeah. So it, working back, but the, 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 I just don't. I've always felt that we do. We don't need rubbish. We don't need waste. It shouldn't exist. It doesn't need to exist. It's just that we think about the end and then work back. Right. We should think about the end first and then we, we need to change the way we think and then it's not that hard when people go oh actually yeah if you change the certain materials there is no we, we can easily live in a world without waste so you found these uh steel structures you use those for floral displays and for for plants and for, yeah, well, as um, part of architecture integral to architecture it sort That's of started you start. yeah my, my family when i was 18 they gave me the choice do you want to come become a partner? And I'd always said that I wanted to join the business, the family business. I, it really excited me. And when I was 15, 16, that's all I wanted to do was leave school and work on the farm. And when I was 19, I went to Europe and came back and my dad said, right, you've got to make the choice now because you can buy your mum's share out or do something like that. And I decided for some stupid reason, I just, my gut feeling said, I don't want to do this. I want to do something on my own. So I've spent the last, that was 1993 and... I moved to South Melbourne and started exporting, importing, uh, exporting Australian-grown flowers. And I shared with a guy called Tony Leonardis who had a mushroom importing business. So that's how I got onto Andrew Blake and Blue Train and all these places that were buying these amazing mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And that's they said, well, can we start using these flowers? So I started selling box flowers originally. In 94, I started supplying the river and Blue Train and Country Road and all these places with boxed flowers. And then I thought, well, it looks terrible the way you're putting them in the vase, you know. And then it's guys like Vernon Chalker, Con Christopoulos, all these people that have said, you know, you've got a real creative flair. Why don't you just do it your way? And because I've never really been trained, yeah, yeah I always yeah. found beautiful vessels. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a, something that holds water. It may be you know, something else. So whether it's rolls of wire or, you know, whatever I could so find. in you, you started doing light fittings? Yeah, yeah. It became, you know, can you help us out with furniture? You know, in 95, 96, 97, I, my focus was actually on another business on a worm farm that I started with a very close friend of mine. Mm-hmm. So I would spend only two or three days a week on the flowers, but the other four days I would be yeah. focusing on feeding, you know, 40 tonnes of manure to my worm population because I believed again in using a byproduct to make an incredible fertilizer and I gave that up and focused by uh, uh, 19 by the, by the late 90s I'd focus completely on doing installations and built it up to you know over a hundred clients every week so, and service them yeah yeah so I would go to homes uh, bars every, everyone from cherry to you know to the gin palace to the Stoke house to you know it was it was you know Pearl on Dean when it opened, you know, the, it was quite amazing that it went from it's rock and roll bar. Yeah, yeah. And I tried to have a, something completely different in each venue. I really respected the venue and the look. I never really... Um, and then it almost became integral to the architecture. So people would bring you in yeah. before something even started and said, 
how can we make this our own? Yeah, it's so, and you know, one should become friends because for me, it's everything is about collaborations. I'll never forget when Neil Perry called me, and he said, uh, "My name's Neil. I've got my got your number." Earl Carter gave him my number, and uh, I'd request an interview. And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, I've heard that you only do flowers for people you like, so you've got to interview me." Fantastic. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. But that was, I got burnt a few times and I thought, you know what, I'm only going to deal with people I like because it just saves the hassle. Yeah. You know, you get paid, you get looked after and you respect. And guys like um, Fernan and, um, I mean, there's many, yeah. uh, the, the Van Handles and even like Matt Bax, when I met him, he had a little beer bar called the Rome. It was a German beer hall. He had 10 different German beers. And uh, he then met my now business partner in Perth, Paul Aaron, who was an amazing cocktail maker from the UK, yeah. originally from Australia. And then I came up with that, you know, within six months, Matt had 450 types of spirits that he collected from all over the world. And I said, this is just not working in your bar. You know, you've got, you're forever looking for one of your 90 vodkas. So that's when I came up with the idea of suspending it all from the ceiling with Ocu straps, you know, and I found like boxes of Ocu straps in a scrapyard and we put up the concrete mesh and then all the bottles were suspended from the ceiling and all of a sudden he freed up all his bar space and it became quite iconic for a venue and that sort of story happens all over and it's just unique to that bar, you know. You hit the news recently with uh, your greenhouse and uh, you, uh, for people who don't know about the greenhouse, but they should because it's been in Sydney, in Melbourne, uh, in Brisbane. In Perth. In Perth. Perth. Yeah, we've Sorry, got a permanent Perth, one. Yeah. Permanent one in Perth. Yeah. Huge amount of energy goes into putting these greenhouse uh, buildings in. Yep. I mean, you build them, you're, they're sustainable, uh, they're, they're literally constructed in a matter of days, but a huge amount of energy is goes into them and you obviously for people who I think most people would know they've probably seen it yeah uh the whole thing is sustainable from the food that's prepared through to the furniture the recycled furniture how much for people who don't know what goes into making something like that how difficult is it uh it's incredibly stressful it's uh, the timing uh, it's the timing but also when you're dealing with with whether it's councils or you know people just view it as a temporary building so they don't take it seriously but you need to go through all the permits all the same thing as a permanent building it's quite funny that i actually have a building permit for the first greenhouse in 2008 i can actually build it anywhere within the city of melbourne right. and not not require a permit it's quite odd rob adams pointed that out to me you know he said it actually is in a very old um, but it's valid it's valid and it will remain because no one really pulls buildings down and rebuilds them but you've got a building permit so if you find a block of land you can rebuild that building why why uh is it that you can't stay longer why can't you- it's mainly um well i people find them unsightly or no it's just it's my own fault that i've agreed to do them that way and going forward in London as well, we're saying to people like in, it, lots of cities want them as pop-ups. We could have 20 of them tomorrow in cities all over the world, yeah. but I've said no more pop-ups. It's the one that's going up for the Food and Wine Festival is actually heading to London. Right. So for us, it's a chance to see all this new technology to make sure that it all works before it takes off to London. Right. And um, so the whole building will get deconstructed and re and sent away. So there's, it's and great, apart from the straw, which I'm going to use as mulch for my farm, but... For the London building, uh, that's quite a coup, the London. Yeah, it's um, it's hard because of the... Again, we could go in the most iconic location in London if it was for three months, but I've, 
I don't have the energy. It just drains me every time we do one of these, and I just can't afford to. Tell me what's involved. You know, it's, uh, um, well, it's my own fault for going <laughs> taking it to, like now. You know, I'm working with Coroma. I've requested Coroma to design a urinal, a waterless female urinal, because I want to harvest the urine as fertilizer. Because again, I think it's madness that we've got seven billion people creating fertilizer and we don't use it at the moment, and. You know, it's right down to those details. Just, I'm talking about screws that they need to be designed differently so they can be reused or that they are completely recyclable. Um, it's yeah, there's so many different elements to it. With Carter Holt working out different glues to take some some of the elements out, and and it's quite amazing that these big companies. It's quite. I find it quite amazing that I get an opportunity to say to these guys, "This needs to change," and and you know, and they're saying, "Okay, well, we'll change." You know, it's it's quite amazing. Yes, do you th- do you see a time where they will be permanent structures? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm talking to the Melbourne that. City with the Melbourne City Council at the moment, at, at looking at three different sites for a permanent one at the moment. So yeah, we hope that um, in the next two years we'll have a permanent one in Melbourne, and it's the same in Sydney. Do you employ, when you're designing uh, the greenhouses, do you employ different designers like furniture designers or you tend to put your hand onto everything? Um, it, it, usually it goes back from the material and works back. So if I find a material, then I go back, like in... Um, like street signs? Or- yeah, yeah. So Brian, a good friend of mine who's got Manevelin Recycling, he gets a lot of street signs when there's an accident and a sign, he gets all the signs and he saves them for me and then I work back that design. Uh, for Sydney, my, a lot of people, a lot of farmers don't use aluminium irrigation pipes anymore. They now use poly irrigation. So yeah. farms have got you know aluminium irriga- irrigation pipes lying around. And you're thinking, what can I do with it? So I designed the chair, and then I'm, everyone that I spoke to, furniture makers, I said, we can't weld old aluminium. It's really hard. And then I, it took me, it, it, it was probably two years before I actually, I was trying to do it already two years ago, and I just couldn't find anybody that was prepared to work with this stuff. Because a lot of these pipes are 25, 30 years old. And uh, then one day, Marco, who fixes my pump, you know, he, I said to him, hey, how do you go welding old aluminium? He said, well, that's all I weld. I've never weld, I don't <laughs> weld with new aluminium. I'm fixing your stuff after time, you know? And so he, Marco, ended up making all my chairs. He made 100 yeah. chairs for Sydney and 40 tables. And, and I love that, you know, and it's good because he can do that when he's not busy servicing pumps or something. So he can go back and... Make the chairs. Yeah. And it's the same with the leather, the tannery. You know, I went to the tannery to order skins in Ballarat. And then I saw a whole pile oh, was of... was this for furniture? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I saw this massive pile of beautiful leather. And they said, oh, we just throw that in the skip. And I said, why? I said, well, it's when it goes from four millimeters to three millimeters in the shoulder saddle makers don't want it car companies nobody wants that so we cut that away and so then you design the chair back around that piece of leather and um you see the the, the changes in it and it's beautiful it still lasts forever you know but it's so that sort of stuff excites me yeah and testing things out you're working on a new house at bateman's bay and you're testing the materials there tell me about that yoast yeah so when i um, it must be five or six years ago when I was trying to get my house approved in the, in Monbolg and the council had problems with the fact that it was straw bale. So from a fire rating point of view, I tried to get um, um, some data to show that the, the you know the straw bales aren't flowing. The house from straw isn't as uh, f- uh, bad as what people say it is. And um, we got onto a guy called um, Justin Leonard, who's a scientist with CSIRO, 
And I just clicked with this guy, you know, and he said, oh, I do this, do that. And then we went back. The council ended up approving it. And, and it I, sort of, I sort of stayed in touch with Justin and because he, he really liked the, my idea of the steel frame, the light gate steel frame embedded with the straw. He, because there's no oxygen in walls or in ceilings, so there's very little place for a fire to take hold. So he said, your building would take days and days to burn, which is fantastic. So we've sort of kept in touch. And then this year we got more serious about that and uh, we've I've started a collaboration with the CSIRO where you know we can work together and uh, last week we built a little building it's only eight by um, nine by four meters and on Tuesday they're going to do a fire test what's it made of it's made of straw bales light gauge steel it's got soil on the roof right. and it's um, got steel frame window and um, yeah, the windows are, again amazing. I found this material in Switzerland, which is a steel frame. Because what I'm trying to do is reduce the amount of materials that go into the building, and so that if you ever do pull the building down, you just need two or three skips, and everything goes back to that, and that goes back to that, and everything. Gets and it's fire, and, and it's fire resistant. Yeah, yeah. So magnesium oxide is something that Justin told me about five years ago, and I've spent five years trying to get it first for our house, and then. Um, uh, over the years, I've learned a lot more about this product. It's a it's a byproduct of iron ore, of the creation of iron ore. It's a mineral that's in the ground. The Romans used it. It's in the pyramids. It's fire resistant to, you know, uh, I think it's two thousand degrees. And all you do, I went to China to actually see this stuff for myself because they use it everywhere in China. They don't really use any other cladding material there. They mix it with water and cure it at forty degrees or at room temperature. Whereas fiber cement sheet gets cured at 1600 degrees and you see the energy that goes into making these boards and how it, difficult they are to recycle whereas magnesium oxide is like a terracotta pot you just smash it and re, re break it down and this stuff is the same you just break it down yeah. and you can turn it into a board so it's forever recyclable and it's so it's incredibly fire resistant it's and it's very similar to having a magnesium oxide tablet magnesium tablet from the chemist it's the same properties so yeah. from a health point of view it's um it's 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 not dangerous, not toxic. I think what's important about what you're doing generally is that in the last few years, with the economy going down in a downwards direction, there's been a lot of junk food coming onto the market. Yeah. I mean, in huge amounts. I mean, it's poisonous, basically. A lot of money being being made. So you're presenting a completely, you know, natural, fresh, you know, way yeah. to eat and you know to live. How is that getting through to the wider community? Is it something that's going to take years to develop? I don't know. You know, I just, my philosophy is don't tell people what to do, just do it. And, you know, they'll lead. you'll lead and they'll yeah, follow. Yeah, I, I've never listened to, when somebody tells me what to do, I just use, and I think most human beings are the same. My kids don't listen to me when I tell them what to do. And mm. I, you know, when governments, especially in Europe and that, I've noticed that, you know, when people try and enforce things, you know, it's very hard to, to change the direction. If you do something, in it, and that's why the greenhouse is so good, because people think it's cool, it's exciting, it's got great music playing, it's got great, great stuff, food. and they go, oh, this is great. You know, you, you, Tell me about the bread. You actually make it every day. Yeah, we- so, so um, I can't remember when I got this book, but it was given to me. No, I, I found this book in an old bookshop. It was written in the 50s by a scientist who worked for Winston Churchill. And he was hired because the soldiers were getting sick. It was the f- world's first uh, uh, processed food. It lasted forever. Mm-hmm. They sent it out with the soldiers, and the soldiers mm-hmm. were getting sick. And so they hired him to find out why the soldiers were getting sick. And um, so they could send the food out with the soldiers in for three months and not have to worry about it. They were, had their food. 
and they were getting constipated and they were getting depressed and they were getting and he, and he wrote this this book and said if we go down this path of this sort of food we'll, we'll it's self destruction because it links in with your mental health and it, it uh, the diet it, it, the toxins stay within your body and because this food is basically the reason why it lasts is because you've killed it it's dead it's got nothing alive left in it and this just i just found this book amazing and so I spent more and more time researching and researching. And I remember thinking, you know, grain gets all this amazing nutrients and goodness out of the soil. And then we process it, process it, turn it into flour, kill it so that we can turn it into a commodity. And if like a hundred years ago, there was no such thing as, as trading flour. You couldn't because flour was perishable. It was like milk. It went off. So people traded grain. A hundred years ago, there was still over 10,000 stone mills in, in the UK alone operating milling flour fresh. Mm. And then I really started to learn more and realized that freshly milled grain has over 25 vitamins, minerals, and nutrients and things like antibiotics, oils, things that keep the, the seed from going off. And, and So all the, all the, the bread... Well, we use it for everything. So bread, pasta, pizza, donuts, every biscuits, everything gets made from everything gets stone ground fresh. So if you have a pasta for lunch, we mill that at eleven a.m. So it was grain. You know, if you have a pasta at one o'clock, it was grain two hours ago, and that's that's the way it should be. And also, when you order rolled oats, we roll them for you. So it was a, a kernel. You know, five minutes before you ordered it, and what. Um, what a lot of people are saying is that it's it's really affected them mentally, which to me is just complete eating your pro- eating your product. Yeah, yeah, because it, of course it does. I mean, everything is holistic, and that's the whole point about the greenhouse. It's you, you can't be passionate about coffee cups and not worry about what you wear. Or every, it's a holistic, a holistic approach, approach, and and that's what I'm trying to say. We've got to care for our farmers and respect what they grow, and. That goes right it, through to everything we do. A, I mean, there is a trend with younger people now who are going back to using their bikes, you know, ditching mobile phones, yep. starting up vegetable patches. There is quite a strong movement out there. I mean, I'm seeing it with my own kids. Yep. And so I'm hoping that this is something really positive for the future that we can really Well, I mean, look, to. you can see how busy the restaurant is, and I think that proves, you know, how that people yeah. are prepared to change. And I, I get annoyed with the fact that, most of the Western world says if it's green, it's expensive. My whole point is it's it's not. I mean, it, you save money when you turn the, the the light off during the day. You know, it, it is that simple. We've just got to go back to some of the more simple ideas. And I, and like with the technology that I use for roll forming the greenhouse, that is cutting edge technology. But it has no waste because we're using cutting edge technology to roll form the building. And it actually uses every piece of the coil, whereas a conventional building, you order 3.6 lengths, you cut them to size, you've always got a bit left over. And and that's, again, you know, there is no need to have waste. You've you've got so many things on the go at the moment. It's actually quite difficult following where you're going because you've got so much going on. But what what are some of the key projects you're thinking about for the future? What are the things that interest you and that you'd like to develop? Uh, I'd love to um, highlight... Like one of the things that concerns me the most is what farmers are getting, and the, the fact that they're not valued. It, it, the and farmers yeah. even themselves don't even value what they've got. You know, when you're getting two hundred dollars for a ton of wheat, you know, it is. It, just to give you an idea, we put a hundred grams of grain in a pasta. It's two cents. Yeah. You know, 
why can't we pay these people what it's worth, you know, or whether it's potatoes or I'm worried about monocultures and I'm trying to figure out a way that we can, uh, you know, I know biodynamics and organics and all these associations, some of the farmers that I respect the most I can't be bothered. Can't be bothered with with filling out the forms and and complying. Yet, them farming methods are amazing. Mm. You know, I'm sort of trying to encourage biodiversity and and get away from monocultures and maybe start things like linen. There used to be a lot of linen grown in Victoria. You know, that's a great break crop for for um, wheat. Um, maybe we can start growing more linen again because you get also the oil, you get seed, you know, you get a thousand litres off, off, off an acre of linen, plus you get the fibre, plus it's a great break for your crop. Grow mustard, you get the oil, you, you know, you get the protein and stuff back in. Uh, start crop diversity so growers aren't so reliant on just getting the one market. crop. They might, they've got to go back to two or three or four or five crops. And at least, you know, my um, opa, my dad's dad used to always say, you're better off growing five things because you rarely find that all five things are in the gutter, you know, and I think that that's something to be said and I think we need to value what it's what it's worth and I think I don't think people actually realise what it does and there's also things like um, in Europe, the drive towards plant-based plastics is causing this such massive destruction outside of Europe. In Europe, you're thinking you're doing a great thing by using, um, you know, styrofoam made from plants. You know, a friend. Actually, I just met with um, Paulina, who is with Thames and Hudson, and we're doing a book with. And she just got back from Borneo, and she said, "You just drive and drive and drive, and it's just clear hectares of hectares forest cleared for 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 sugar for uh, palm oil." Now, when you realise that, like a hectare of canola produces a couple of thousand liters of oil at a really good crop, um, palm oil up to 10,000 litres. That's the reason why these guys are just cutting rainforests. And there's just this appetite for this plastic. And everybody thinks they're doing a great thing, but they actually re- it's actually causing more devastation than you can possibly... What do, what do you find the most challenging thing about what you're doing at the moment? It, it is, In terms uh, of uh, I find educating it, the market? Or? No, I just find it really hard to convince people to do something differently. And that's, yeah, it's... So you have to prove by example. Yeah, to, yeah. And, and um, it's draining. It's incredibly draining. And I, it depresses me sometimes because I think there's so many... Like, I just look at kids, say, if I go to my... Uh, drop the girls off at school. And you see how young and excited and, and I, I, I can see myself. You know, you, the world's your oyster. And you sort of got... You know, why can, why does that stop when you're 18, 19, 20? I'm, I'm naive. And Marie Kylie will, will, always says, you know, that, that's what I like about you. You're like a little kid. You just... You know, you you think that anything's possible. It's um, the, uh, the determination to get see an idea through is what drives me. But it it takes so much that? out of you that it's just, and then you just go, well, why not try something different? You know, why do we? And then you realise all these things that are happening in the world today are happening for a yeah. reason because people just don't really want to change. Well, I hope you know, you continue fighting the cause, uh, because I think it's making a huge difference, not just to um, Melbourne, uh, but also internationally as well. And to have people like you at the forefront really makes me feel comfortable that the future is going in a direction uh, that is yeah. sustainable. It's great when you get emails from, you know, 18, 19-year-old chefs and people wanting to work. I, I think the, the staff show that you know people do believe in it and people do want to get behind it and whether it's a guy in london or america or korea saying can we come and work for you it's fantastic that's what gives me um 
the inspiration to keep going, you know, and I just, I'm sure that Jen, uh, my wife, sometimes says, what the hell are we doing this for? But Oh, but you need to be a dreamer. Yeah. You need to be a dreamer. <laughs> but I think the thing is, in your case, you've actually, uh, it's been reality and people can see what you're doing. So, um, look, thanks so much for coming in. It's been a privilege no, interviewing I, you. Thanks for your time. And um, I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about Yoast. Thanks, thanks. very much. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks, Yoast.